Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> I'm Mark Goldberg, your host, and we have a great show today. On the line is Suzanne Nossel, who's been described, who I will describe, as one of her generation's greatest foreign policy thinkers. And we have a a really wonderful conversation that uh, stretches the span of her career. She's had a great career in and out of government. We talk about the roots of her commitment and dedication uh, to human rights, which uh, are actually beyond the shores of America, in a way you will see. We talk about Suzanne's formulation of her concept of smart power, which was given a big boost by Hillary Clinton in both her nomination hearing to become Secretary of State and in her farewell address upon leaving the State Department. And for you UN nerds out there, we have a great conversation about the Human Rights Council. Suzanne was instrumental in shaping American policy towards that body. Here we go. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, I know I did. So I wanted to actually maybe just to kick off, ask you a quick question uh, about uh, your current role, uh, and maybe we can work backwards from there. Uh, so at the Penn American Center, you advocate and you for literary freedom, right? Of, of sort of prisoners of conscience and, and uh, sort of people who are persecuted in some way for the things that they write. Well, that's the I would say the core of it, the genesis of it. Penn was started. Actually, 91 years ago, after World War One, as an organization of writers to promote free expression and work for international understanding to try to prevent things like World War. Obviously, it wasn't a fully successful experiment, but the organization has endured and thrived, and it is a collection of writers, leading writers from all over the world. Uh, there are pen centers in more than 100 different countries, and it's always been sort of a home for some of the greatest, most prominent, most uh, lauded writers in the world, Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, um, and many, many others who joined together in this common mission. So it's quite unique. I sort of like to say if you if you didn't have them all together kind of under this big tent, if that hadn't been created 91 years ago, you'd never be able to make it happen today because it's such a diversity of you know, not just literary genres, but political perspectives, uh, philosophies, attitudes, but uh, united in this joint mission to stand for free expression. So part of the work is kind of the very practical stands that we take on behalf of threatened, detained, and jailed writers all over the world. Uh, you know, I was just interviewed last night um, about uh, a very troubling case in China of one of our writers who uh, is being held in, incommunicado. Who's that? Uh, du Bin. Um, what happened to him or her? Well, he has produced a documentary about conditions in a women's labor camp in China, and he also wrote a book about uh, Tiananmen Square that came out um, just a few months ago, uh, timed with the 24th anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre. And uh, just after the release of those two works, uh, was picked up from his home, all of his Notes and books in connection with those two projects were confiscated, and he's being held uh, with no communication with attorneys or his family. So it's part of a 
you know, troubling pattern that we've seen uh, over the last month or two, uh, kind of, I, I would say, shredding away the hope that Xi Jinping might bring about uh, a more uh, liberal and less repressive regime toward writers and, and those exercising their rights to free expression. So, you know, just one so when that, one sorry. example of many, but mm-hmm. that's that's an important piece of our work. But it also is broader. We uh, advocate for free expression and now are very focused on digital freedom. We did a big declaration on digital freedom across the, the tens of thousands of writers who are part of Penn kind of came together on a shared statement of principles. And now we're now working to train uh, our writers around the world to implement and advocate for the respect of those freedoms in their own countries. Um, so, you know, I, I uh, wanted to sort of get into uh, your background and, and your history, but I, I wanted to talk about a few sort of current things percolating uh, in the news in the last couple of weeks. And I saw in uh, Foreign Affairs that you were pretty jazzed up about Samantha Power's nomination uh, to be the uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, I sort of I think I think we probably share uh, similar views to that end. I was pretty excited to to uh, see the news myself. So what makes you sort of think that she will be an effective ambassador? Well, let me sort of shift gears here and just be clear that. You know, what I would say on that topic, of course, I'd say in a personal capacity and not in relation to uh, my work at Penn. Um, Maybe that will probably go for everything said in this podcast, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, I think that's probably a good premise. Works for me. So all you readers out there, (laughs) understand that. Okay, great. So, Yeah, I uh, had a chance to work with... Samantha, during my time as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, uh, working on international organizations and Mm -hmm. human rights issues when she was at the White House, and I found her to be a forward-leaning partner who wanted to get things done and make things happen and saw how that was possible within international institutions, notwithstanding their constraints. I think she has a a clear-eyed view on what the limitations of these bodies are, but also sort of an appetite to push and prod to get the most out of them. And I think that's what it takes to be a dynamic U.N. ambassador. I think she also, one of the points I make in the piece is that she sort of embarked on her foreign policy career at a time when the U.S.'s role in the world was already really shifting. So she's not like someone who grew up in a long career in the foreign service and had a good period of years sort of during the, the the demise of the Cold War and, you know, what some called at the time the unipolar moment where American power was at its zenith. And you could throw your weight around a little more. I don't think she's – that's been her – I don't think that's been her experience. I think her experience and her successes have rested on being able to forge genuine cooperation with other countries on a, a kind of peer-to-peer basis. And I think – that's an important element to success at the UN. So now, hopefully she'll be able to bring that. Now, did you know, I know you, you worked uh, with Richard Holbrook for a long time and she sort of cut her teeth as a journalist uh, in the Balkans. Do you have uh, any interaction with her back, back then? I didn't, but I knew that she, when I later worked for Holbrook, I think, you know, I knew of their connection and I had met her, Originally during law school, we were um, a couple of years apart in law school, or one year apart. And so I've known her for a long time, but it wasn't really until the work in the first term of the Obama administration that I, I really got to know her and sort of see how she 
functions and, and, and what her priorities are. Yeah, I remember I, I first uh, met her and it was a really small sort of debate. There's maybe 20 or 30 people in the audience. It was 2003. So it was right after her book came out, but before she won the Pulitzer and sort of become famous, she was uh, debating the Iraq. And this was probably October so, or, or probably, no, it was probably October, 2002. Now that I think about it, it was before uh, the uh, Iraq war. And she was on one side of the debate. Ian Baruma was on the other. Uh, she sort of, I think picked correctly uh, um, against the Iraq war, but then um you know, I, I sort of ate up her book after that. And I think it's, you know, that book is, you know, it's sort of like inspired, I think, a generation of foreign policy idealists in a way. Um, and sort of almost, you know, it's it sort of created this foundation for, you know, an anti-genocide movement that, you know, you saw later emerge around Darfur. So it's sort of interesting to see those ideas sort of in action uh, in the White House. Uh, and now, I guess, at, at the United Nations. Um, so, you know, I guess what is there just, I guess, uh, one more question on, on Samantha power is, is, um, so obviously the big sort of question that she will face, I assume, no, I hope that she will be confirmed. She'll soon sort of face her uh, Senate confirmation, but obviously the, the big sort of overarching, the big dilemma at the UN right now is, is Syria. Uh, and you know, it seems that the U S I would want to get your, your perspective on sort of the current, the, the decision by the Obama administration to start, uh, tentatively arming, uh, rebels, but it seems that there is almost this collision course that's bound to happen at the United Nations, maybe not dissimilar to what we saw over Iraq, uh, which is sort of the U S wanting to intervene more forcefully than the security council might let it. Um, do you, I guess, see a situation where sort of the Obama administration might circumvent the uh, Security Council and maybe go ahead with some sort of, you know, more more forceful armed intervention like a no-fly zone or anything like that? It's hard to predict. And I think, you know, what we've seen, uh, you know, this has been unfolding for some time and that battle in the Security Council has, uh, you know, surfaced repeatedly with mm -hmm. failed efforts to get resolutions passed, uh, you know, and, and they're being met with double vetoes by China and Russia on a couple of occasions. So it's a kind of protracted standoff. And it's, you know, at this point, I don't see uh, the U.S. acting without U.N. authorization, I think, because there remains a, an enormous amount of ambivalence about whether it's wise to act at all and what can, about what can be achieved. So I don't think uh, the debate is, is close to that at this point. You know, it's possible that it will change. I do think there's a great deal of frustration uh, with Russia in particular and, to a lesser extent, China, in that there's a sense that it's not really been possible to exhaust the diplomatic option because there hasn't been a unified diplomatic front. Uh, the leading powers have been very divided on the issue. So there's, there's not been a full court press to try to pressure Assad into a peaceful resolution, which I think uh, you know, most people feel if there is going to be any kind of peaceful resolution, it wouldn't, you know, that he's, he, it's not tenable for him to stay in power. So it would be a diplomatic resolution that probably led to a transition. But without that united front, uh, diplomatically, the leverage just hasn't been there. So, I, you know, I think that standoff will probably continue to play out for a time and, and perhaps, you know, a new team and a new ambassador will, will give that a new shot. Uh, whether the outcome will be any different, uh, 
it's hard to say, and and there are reasons for pessimism. I think Secretary Kerry has been, uh, you know, giving it giving it a shot as well, but without much sign of a change of position. You know, if if that position does change, if if the U.S. wants to take more aggressive action, that the Security Council might let it. One important role I do see for Samantha Power would be uh, sort of convincing American liberals that this is the right course. Uh, I think sort of American liberals tend to sort of trust her and human rights people tend to sort of, you know, look at her for guidance. And if she sort of is the face of a policy that circumvents the Security Council, I think it will sort of probably be, have wider support than, than otherwise. Um, but, you know, I, I guess, yeah, on, on uh, this, this Syria question, though, I mean, this, I, I actually, I wonder if you're, I'll put a, a question to you. Um, so there has been some, there have been a few op-eds re- written recently identifying sort of the administration's insistence that Assad leave as, in retrospect, maybe not being the wisest um, and most prudent course, uh, that maybe this, you know, insisting on this precondition that Assad leave power has uh, made a sort of negotiated settlement much more difficult uh, and may make, frankly, uh, whatever they call this Geneva II conference uh, sort of stillborn in a way. I'm wondering if you agree or if you think, you know, he should still go no matter what. Well, I think the question is whether he can govern that country, uh, given the depth and degree of dissent uh, that surrounds him, given the devastating toll that his tactics of repression have taken on the Syrian people, you know, is there a way for him to stay in power short of, you know, this continuing relentless onslaught that, you know, already has has led to the deaths of nearly 100,000 people, according to the UN's latest statistics. So I think that's what's driving, you know, the sentiment that uh, many have expressed that he must go. It's the sense that, you know, there's no way for him to continue on ruling, you know, short of the most brutal methods. You know, could that change at a certain point, you know, if the um, dissent melts away or weakens, you know, does there become a scenario where, he remains in power, uh, you know, happily or unhappily, you know, both for the Syrian people and for, you know, their their neighbors and the diplomatic community. I, you know, I don't think it's out of the question, but I think that's really what's driving the sentiment is just the sense of, you know, look at the tactics that he's had to resort to in order to retain power and that, uh, you know, having the Syrian people be subjected to that is unacceptable. Um, so changing gears a little bit, I wanted to talk talk to you about your career. Um, so ha- I guess, how did you get into this, the, the foreign policy game? Was your family involved? Was your, your parents, uh, were they sort of into uh, foreign policy issues? Where where did you grow up? How did this all start? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up outside of New York, New York. Um, oh, and where? As in Westchester County. All right. I'm from Danbury originally. Yeah, so not too far away. Not too far. Um, and... My parents actually were born and raised in South Africa, so they were not involved in foreign policy or international affairs really at all. But as a child growing up, we did go and visit my grandparents and other relatives who lived in South Africa, and it was during kind of the days of high apartheid. Um, And I think that left a deep impression on me. I remember 
seeing and once at one point writing a little diary when I, I think I was nine years old and I missed some school and my assignment was to write a little diary about our trip to South Africa and writing about driving by beaches that we couldn't visit because they were not for white people or wanting to sit on the upper decker level of a double-decker bus and being told, no, that's where black people sit. We sit down here and looking at separate bathrooms and water fountains. And I think as a young kid growing up in kind of fairly liberal, you know, 1970s New York, it really stood out for me and left a deep impression. And then later on, when I was in college, I sort of decided I wanted to really understand what all that was about. It was just at the time that South Africa was beginning to undergo its transformation. Uh, Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison, and there was a very complicated process of transitional negotiations underway. And I went for a couple of years and worked there dealing with political violence in the townships. And it was such a fluid situation that I managed to get sort of a front row seat witnessing and being part of mm -hmm. these processes of reconciliation between many different parties in South Africa, the police, the army, the ANC, Nkata, the trade unions, civic organizations, church organizations, and kind of witnessing and, and playing a role in helping to bring them all to the table in local communities and sort of seeing how they work through all of the tensions and conflicts that had built up uh, over a very long period and began to prepare themselves for a transition and a new era. And I think that experience, just being able to see all of that up close, left a very deep impression. And so were, your, were your grandparents liberals in uh, South Africa? You know, they were... Um, my mother's parents were the only grandparents that I knew. They actually uh, were refugees from Nazi Germany who had come to South Africa during the 1930s. Her brother, my mother's brother, had been born in Germany, and then my grandfather had lost his job, and he had to leave. And so they, I would say, um, they didn't really stick their necks out politically, and knowing their history, I could sort of understand why, but they were not politically active. You know, you, I always wondered about, um, about that because you, you really don't, I mean, I, I don't hear, maybe I could be wrong, of there being many sort of white liberals in, in South Africa uh, who are, you know, visible in, in any uh, sort of, you know, in, in any big way. Was there, I mean, is that your sense? You know, it's, it's, it's like an impression I have. It's not anything I have sort of scientific proof of. <laughs> Um, there were some very prominent white liberals, um, you know, Joe Slovo, um, Ronnie Castrols, Albie Sachs uh, are some of the big names. And, you know, Sachs went on to become a justice of the South African Supreme Court. Joe Slovo was a major official in the South African Communist Party and the African National Congress. So there were people who really did risk their lives and, you know, they didn't have to, you know, they weren't uh, victims of apartheid, but they were motivated by their sense of injustice. So there definitely were, you know, and many others. I mean, there's just a few names, but there were many others, you know, proportionately, was it a large number? You know, perhaps not, but definitely some standout, very courageous people. 
Uh, so, so you're in South Africa. You're working um, on that uh, on that political and, and reconciliation reconciliation effort. Um, when now what, did you quickly join the State Department thereafter, or uh, were you in university at the time? Is that right? Well, that was between college and law school. So I went back to law school after that, and I then uh, I clerked for a judge and worked. Uh, as, for a lawyer as a time for a time, and then uh, yeah, it was a couple of years later that I went into the U.S. mission to the UN uh, during the Clinton administration. So uh, that's the first time I became a State Department uh, appointee. So about about what year was that? That was I uh, ninety nine, I think. Okay, so um, so after after the Balkans, but before uh, Kosovo, or was it right around when Kosovo was happening? I think it was after Kosovo, uh, after mm-hmm. the Kosovo operation, which I think was um, I want to say ninety eight. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you know what? Um, now, when when you were in law school, did you uh, or? or do you have a PhD or is it a law degree and uh, undergrad? Yeah, I have a JD, a law JD, degree. JD, okay, yeah. okay. Um, did you focus on sort of human rights law and, and, and that that sort of uh, you know, international humanitarian law, anything like that? To some degree. I mean, I was involved. I took some courses and I was uh, co-editor of the Human Rights Law Journal. Mm-hmm. So we were working on articles had a, a publication on human mm-hmm. rights issues. So it, it was an interest of mine during that period. And I also, I went back uh, during South Africa's first democratic election. I went back as an election monitor. So I found a few ways to try to stay connected. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe uh, one last quick question on, on South uh, Africa. I mean, um, you know, as we're speaking now, Nelson Mandela seems to be sort of gravely ill uh, or some degree of gravely ill. Um, what, I guess... What do you expect sort of the, I mean, the, he's 94 years old, obviously the inevitable will, will happen. What do you expect to be sort of the, the national reaction in South Africa when that happens? Yeah, I just think it'll be painful. I mean, he was just such an extraordinary, iconic figure and, the kind, you know, really, I think, demonstrated what a transitional leader can be and how it can be possible to lead a people from a hostile standoff to, you know, a, a very significant measure of reconciliation and what that takes. And I think witnessing over time so many other really rocky transitions in so many parts of the world, you know, I think it does come down to some degree to the leadership not being up to the challenge of taking masses of people under such difficult circumstances through that kind of transformation process where you're really asking them to rethink their attitudes, to open up to new ideas and new people, to uh, put down their arms, to dig into an economy and try to revive it, to work side-by-side side with people who were their sworn enemies. And he did a lot of that, and it was incredibly impressive. And I think without him, that transition would have unfolded 
very differently. It has not been by any measure, you know, complete success. But I think if you look back at what people expected, I mean, certainly when I was growing up, um, the expectation, it was barely spoken about, but was that the country would kind of blow up at some point, that it was just a seething cauldron um, and would be, you know, in some way destroyed. And that never happened. So I think it will be a deep mourning and you know, real recognition of just how incredibly unusual his traits were, not just, you know, for South Africa, but, uh, you know, anywhere in the world. So you're, I mean, so, uh, you know, your take is that obviously he is, you know, an exceptional sort of historic figure that helped manage that transition in a way uh, that was sort of something less than a horrible disaster, which many people expected it to be. What, I mean, I guess, what role do you think the, the truth and reconciliation process played into that? Because obviously, you know, there are, you know, that sort of serves as one example of sort of, you know, international justice uh, for the principles of international justice being meted out at a very sort of local level to, um, you know, to ends that, that were very sort of stabilizing in, in the long run. Yeah, I think it was a very important process, and I think that his recognition of the need for a process like that and his uh, vision of what the process would look like and that it would be focused on reconciliation rather than retribution, you know, was controversial at the time, but I think stood the test of time and, you know, obviously has been uh, become a model for many other countries and really almost a whole movement of justice, accountability, and reconciliation that has uh, stepped up in the intervening couple of decades. So I think that was a very important piece, but it was just a piece. You know, uh, if you hadn't had a strong leader at the helm, I don't think you could have done that truth and reconciliation process um, or or that it would have delivered the results. Mm -hmm. I guess it's almost, um, you know, it's 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 sort of you know there are obviously many countries in transition that could you know use a leader like Nelson Mandela, but there aren't that many leaders like Nelson Mandela out there. So it's sort of a uh, less than satisfying conclusion that it takes sort of a great person to sort of manage these transitions, as opposed to sort of you know other other factors that can be you know controlled. No, you're right, and there's a great temptation to try to grasp for. A formula, you know, what sort of committee can you set up? Uh, you know, when do you hold elections? What does a reconciliation tribunal or process look like? And you know, I think all of that is important and plays a role. But uh, you know, as unsatisfying as it is to acknowledge that there's no substitute for leadership, I think it's the truth. So uh, you know, and I think people recognize it as, as they look at other situations where. Tremendous resources and energy have been poured in, uh, but not always with satisfying results. Um, so, okay, so fast forwarding to 1999. Um, so how, now, were you a political appointee? Yeah. Uh, so, did yeah. you did you know Richard Holbrook personally, or how did that work? I didn't know him. I had read his book about the war in Bosnia, mm-hmm. and I thought it was a pretty remarkable story of how he managed to bring these warring parties together, and I was sort of captivated by what he had achieved there, and then I wrote him a letter when I saw that he was appointed as UN ambassador, and his nomination was delayed for a long time, and actually during that time, I went and worked at McKinsey, the consulting firm, sort of with the goal of getting 
problem-solving skills that I could bring back to the public sector at some point. And then when his nomination finally went forward, I kind of dropped another note to say that I was still interested, and I had been at McKinsey. And at the time, they were looking for somebody to assist with a renegotiation of U.S. dues to the U.N., which had become a very thorny issue. Yeah. And they thought my McKinsey background would be helpful. So, so that's, that's actually how it was basically about. a cold call. You just you just you know found his email address or or, or address, and you just wrote wrote a letter and say, "Hey, here's who I am. Can I help?" Almost, yeah. I mean, that's how it began. And then I think once um, I began to talk with them, you know, I found a few points of connection, uh, professors that I'd had who knew him, who could, uh, you know, put in a word of recommendation, but it pretty much uh, was a cold letter. It was, it was before you really even did that kind of stuff by email. That is pretty cool for, for uh, launching, a, launching a foreign policy career. Um, so, so you're, you're thrust into, so you're, you were the, uh, dues negotiator. I don't, I love the, as you know, I, I love these, these, uh, details, but I think we could talk for many hours about the sort of intricacies of U.S. dues payments to the United Nations. I would be fascinated. I think you would, I'm not sure how fascinating it would be to everyone else, but, uh, politically it was, it was a big challenge at the time, right? I mean, you had Congress, uh, who was refusing to pay the UN. Um, and this, frankly, this is almost the origins of how I got my gig at the UN foundation, because in the midst of this all, Ted Turner said, well, if the Congress is not going to pay the UN, I'll give them a billion dollars. But instead he set up the UN foundation, which supports uh, the UN dispatch blog. Um, so, so, uh, you were sort of, you, so basically was your, were you negotiating with other countries at the UN or with Congress? So were you, were you trying to negotiate us dues levels or were you trying to sort of placate Congress in, in a way? Well, it was a little bit of both. Before I joined, there had been a piece of legislation that essentially made it possible for the U.S. to repay the bulk of the dues that the United States owed to the U.N., but only if the U.S. could secure an agreement from the U.N. membership to lower the rate of U.S. dues that would be paid going forward. So... That was the deal that had been uh, enacted into law, and our job essentially was to present that deal to the U.N. and try to get agreement on it. And, of course, it was very unpopular because we came during the longest period of sustained prosperity in U.S. history, and we were regarded by many as a deadbeat at the U.N. I mean, they actually used that word uh, because the U.S. had not been paying its dues for a long period, and there was enormous frustration with the U.S. They would sort of wag fingers in our face and say, you pay on time, in full, and without conditions before you speak out on just about anything here at the U.N. Mm -hmm. And so it was a difficult position to be in. It was a little bit hard to defend this deal because the terms of it had really been passed into law by the Congress without any input from the U.N., and we didn't have much wriggle room. Yeah. One thing Holbrook realized was that we would need a little bit of wriggle room. So what we did was we really set about to get something very close to the kind of agreement that the legislation provided for. We have to get every country in the system to agree to it because all of their dues were going to have to go up a little bit to make up mm -hmm. for the reduction in dues that we were trying to get. So it was a huge negotiation. At the end of the day, we came close, but then we went back to the Congress to sort of saying, you know, we got about 98% of this, but we now need you to bend and uh, amend the law so that we can 
repay even though we haven't fulfilled this 100%. And, and you know, they did. Um, and this was, you know, this was kind of like a Jesse Helms thing, right? This was, this was one of his big uh, bugaboos. Helms, yeah, with Helms Biden, yeah, uh, Helm- with the famous legislation, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Jesse Helms was sort of the driving force, it's, trying it's- to uh, push the UN to reform, pushing for a reduction in U.S. dues, defending uh, the fact that the U.S. wasn't paying uh, in full or on schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you look at you know his legacy. I think really still lives on in, in many ways in, in sort of U.S. foreign policy because he also was kind of instrumental in. Um, you know, almost gutting USAID and the State Department budget, uh, and you know, to the, to the extent that they, I don't think they've really fully recovered. I mean, since sort of that Helms era, uh, you know, USAID sort of had, had to rely mostly on outside contractors to do most of their work. Um, and you, it, it's sort of a, it's almost impressive how his um, sort of ideological predilections have you know it's almost sort of continued to shape U.S. foreign policy so many years later. Well, it's true. And I think, you know, with U.S. and U.N. relations, though, it's kind of, I think we're finally at a point now, I hope, where there is a kind of de facto more pragmatic approach that's being taken. And I think the appetite to kind of bash the U.N., from what I can see, you know, for some time now has ebbed a little bit. And there's a bit more of a sense that this forum, as imperfect as it is, can be useful and Mm -hmm. that we ought to try to make it useful. And, uh, you know, one, and, and maybe this is a good segue into maybe your, your post-Clinton uh, administration career, uh, which, um, you know, was, was you know, punctuated by the Iraq War, but then after the Iraq War by uh, your seminal article on foreign affairs on smart power, uh, which I think is sort of the application of, of the vision that you just described. Um, so maybe, let's just maybe go back to the Iraq War debate. And I want to know how, I guess, how... Um, did the debate over the Iraq War inform your views leading you to write uh, the, the Smart Power foreign policy article, foreign affairs article? Yeah, I think, you know, what many people were troubled by in that debate was the sense that it, there was this kind of relentless drumbeat for war and, you know, a sense that things were being rushed, that the inspections had not been given a full opportunity to play out, that the facts in terms of Iraq's suspected weapons program weren't really known, and that the U.S. was taking a tremendous risk, not just militarily, but also diplomatically, in going ahead, notwithstanding its inability to secure the second U.N. resolution that it sought to authorize military action. And I don't think anyone knew at the time, you know, quite what that would set in motion and, and, and how deep the impact would be. But I think to me and to many people, it looked like the U.S. was moving in the wrong direction. I mean, from everything that I had seen in my own experience at the U.N. in terms of what worked and as far as the U.S.'s ability to marshal others and to get things done, so this wasn't the right approach, and this would reinforce all of the reasons why there can be resistance to the U.S.'s efforts to involve itself in issues or to advance a particular priority. And so I think that was the sense, that we were not using our 
foreign policy tools in, in the right way. It's interesting. You know, many people in sort of the human rights community, broadly speaking, did support, uh, you know, the, the Iraq invasion, um, you know, on, on sort of human rights grounds. Um, but it, but, but so I guess what led you to sort of, um, to, to deviate from, from the rest of those, uh, liberal sort of internationalists and, and well, I think my focus at the time was I, really feeling like the case hadn't been persuasively made, um, you know, at the time when the president went forward, that there was not a strong enough case that the kind of cat and mouse game of the inspections should have been allowed to play out for longer, that if that had happened, what might have been revealed, you know, could have led to uh, a wider consensus, but that um, the timing was, at, at the time when he went forward, the justification wasn't strong enough. And, Did you know, I think they, while certainly there were grave concerns about Saddam Hussein's human rights record, I think there was a widespread sense that that wasn't the motivating rationale here. Did you, I mean, did, were you concerned that, that conclu- coming to that conclusion might have had adversely affected your career? I mean, you know, at the time, the establishment, including, you know, most Democrats and, and most Democrats in power, you know, sort of supported the, um, the, the invasion uh, of Iraq. I don't think I thought about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't in the situation as a member of Congress having to take a vote. Yeah. Um, so, so that, so, so the, the reason you described sort of informed, uh, the, the smart, your smart power article, which was, uh, you know, obviously very well received, um, still, still talked about, I, you know, saw that, um, in her farewell address, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, used the term, uh, again for the, you know, it's funny, it sort of bookended her, her sort of career at the state department, right? Her, I'm trying to recall, but I think in her, um, uh, first congressional testimony, right? She, she sort of articulated the smart power view. And then just a few weeks ago, she, in her farewell address, she also articulated it. Um, I guess, do you, I guess, to what extent do you think that she and the Obama administration more generally sort of applied the principles that you set out in that foreign affairs article? Well, I think she tried to do a number of things um, that were consistent with what I was trying to lay out in the article. And, you know, she invested in trying to build up the role of USAID with strong leadership and improved funding. She uh, sought to invest in U.S. diplomacy and kind of put diplomats closer to, you know, the level of funding and support and recognition afforded to the military. I mean, I don't think uh, she was fully successful in that, nor do I really think anybody could be in the current climate, but she made it a priority. She introduced her uh, diplomacy and development review as a way to try to elevate the importance of those tools within the U.S.'s national security strategy. But, you know, at the same time, I think you have to look back and sort of recognize the first term as a period where the military and the intelligence agencies did have a very dominant role in policy, whether it's uh, Afghanistan or the conduct of the fight against terrorism. You know, those agencies and individuals had uh, a very large role. And I think 
the State Department and considerations related to diplomacy and development, uh, you know, weren't always weighted equally. So I think she, you know, a lot of her efforts were directed at trying to kind of correct that imbalance. And it's interesting that the president in his speech, you know, just about a month ago, coming back to uh, the conduct of the war on terrorism in Guantanamo, you know, himself acknowledged the need for some rebalancing. So perhaps that shows that, you know, her her efforts and her arguments, you know, were heard at some level, even though that wasn't fully manifest during her time in office. Um, so while you were, you were a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, and I remember uh, – you know, interviewing you and speaking to you uh, while you were negotiating America's re-entry or entry into the, the Human Rights Council um, uh, and in, in Geneva. Why, I guess, why, you know, at least so, so from my perspective writing about the UN, I saw that, I think this happened like February, this happened very, very early uh, after um, uh, sort of Obama's inauguration that there was this sort of rebalancing and, and re-engagement policy. And this seemed to be the, the most visible um, demonstration that sort of a, that, that the U.S. was going to do things differently. Um, what, I guess, what was your role, I guess, in, in uh, formulating uh, U.S. policy at the UN Human Rights Council? And I guess, what do you think the Human Rights Council might have accomplished uh, because of U.S. Uh, sort of engagement there? Well, I came in uh, right after the U.S. had been elected, just as it was sort of time to start preparing to kind of take up the U.S. seat for the first time. And so the charge is really to try to make good on the President and the Secretary of State's promise that in joining the Council, the U.S. would work to make it more effective. So the question became, you know, how are we going to do that? And we identified a whole series of concerns with the way that the council was operating. I mean, the most obvious was probably that uh, it was simply not involved in the major human rights issues of the day. Uh, you know, crises would happen, the Green Revolution in Iran would kind of come and go, and the abuses that went along with the crackdown uh, after Iran's last election, and the Human Rights Council would say nothing about it. And so my feeling and our feeling was that those crises were always going to be probably the most prominent test of whether you had a council that was relevant and effective hmm. and kind of no matter how many resolutions you were passing on issues like freedom of expression or women's rights, if the council had nothing to say on the big issues of the day that were dominating the headlines and that were kind of top of mind, if you tapped someone on the shoulder pretty much anywhere in the world and said, you know, what are the most pressing human rights issues, if the council wasn't addressing those, it wouldn't be seen as effective kind of no matter what it was doing. So we worked to try to marshal a group of countries that would support a more active, affirmative approach to dealing with country situations, both brewing crises and then also countries that had made a transition and that needed help in respecting their human rights obligations going forward under new leadership. And so we sort of developed this pattern of resolutions, dealing with crisis situations, uh, extending assistance to countries that had made a transition and were willing to come to the council and look at 
accepting assistance to live up to their obligations. And we made the council a lot more active and relevant so that it was holding debates and dialogues on the big issues of the day, uh, passing resolutions that were timely, setting in motion uh, commissions of inquiry that have developed really important investigations and facts unearthing what's happening, for example, in the situation in Syria. You know, even the statistics we were talking about earlier developed in part because of the mm -hmm. UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry. So I guess before, so the, the council existed in its current state for about four years before the U.S. came on board. So you're saying, I guess, and, and you know, there were human rights loving countries on the council, you know, Western Europe, Western European countries were members of the council and they just didn't have the juice to, uh, to sort of, to, to, to marshal that, the, the, that partnership that, that you're talking about. Well, it was difficult, um, and the council was very polarized, and I think there was a sense of frustration, you know, and almost throwing up your hands at the reluctance of some countries to take on these issues and even debate them. Um, and our approach, you know, we kind of came in with renewed energy and vigor. I mean, maybe partly because we hadn't been there for those years and, and we hadn't gotten so worn down. And we were sort of very affirmative in our outreach and coalition building. So were there uh, any um, sort of positions at, at the Human Rights Council that that uh, maybe you were sort of forced to take uh, because it was sort of, you know, the president's policy or the secretary of state's policy, but not necessarily your preferred approach? And how do you sort of deal with that? Well, I think anytime you're serving in government, you know, there are going to be times where your personal views may not win the day and become U.S. policy. And it's something that you know, you have to accept it's like in any job, you know, if you're in a organization with different stakeholders, um, you know, you, you win some arguments, you lose some arguments, and you, your job is to carry out what the policy is, and if you really can't do that uh, in good conscience, then, you know, you have to rethink your options. But, I, you know, I didn't come to, it didn't come to a point where I felt like I couldn't do that in, in good conscience. Um. What uh, so so? But there were sort of cases where you said this is just this is not right. We shouldn't do this. Yeah, I think there are always times where you might. You know, there are considerations. You know, my job was focused on human rights in the council, but and so I was the designated advocate for those issues. But there are other people who have other equities that you know they focus on, and then there are people whose job it is to weigh up the different equities. So. You know, I think it's a matter of understanding what everyone's role is, including your own. Mm -hmm. um, so, you sir, when did you conclude your your uh, service in the administration? Um, in the fall of two thousand and eleven. Do you think you sort of accomplished what you what you sort of needed to accomplish and wanted to accomplish? Did. I mean, I think by that point, you know, we had quite a lot of momentum at the council. We had many successful sessions or a number of them under our belts. The U.S. had announced it was going to run for re-election. So, you know, there was a sense that 
that initial doubt about whether joining the council had been a good idea or not, you know, had, had to some degree been put to rest. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder, I mean, it was sort of a hot, like this, this question of, so the, the, op, the, the alternate proposal from joining the council was sort of what the Bush administration did, which was just sort of pretend it didn't exist. Uh, and, you know, kind of just sort of ignore it from the sidelines uh, and, and you may criticize from the sidelines, really, um, as opposed to try to reform it and make it a more effective institution. Do you think, um, say, you know, a Republican administration uh, comes in next that, uh, you know, you've sort of proven the worth of the council or that uh, do you think a new administration could sort of, um, you know, just sort of return to that, you know, Bush era policy? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, I think there has been a tendency for the U.N. and U.S. engagement in the U.N. to become very politicized and for it to become sort of a uh, vessel for a lot of different frustrations that are really not so much frustrations with the U.N. as frustrations with the other countries of the world, you know, who are the ones who fill the seats at the U.N. and make the decisions at the U.N., and sometimes that frustration gets taken out on the U.N. itself, and the U.S. kind of instinct, you know, can be to kind of pack up their marbles and go home. But I think in this world that's uh, so globalized where we face rising powers and shifting dynamics, I think that's a very dangerous approach. And, I, you know, I hope what people see is that, through engagement, you can get things done, you can forestall some negative things, not all the time, not completely, but that they're, that it's, it's, it's worth it. Uh, well, that seems like a, a good and positive note to conclude on, uh, running up on, on time, but thank you so much, Suzanne. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot. It's a great conversation. Thank you so much to Suzanne Nossel and you all out there for listening to this podcast and I will see you next week. Bye.